0: Hey LCHP friends and listeners of Then and Now, thank you so much for tuning in. After consecutive 15 months and 46 episodes, we'll be taking a summer break in July and August. During that time, we'll be posting some of our favorite episodes from the past year and preparing for a new season this September. In the meantime, please keep listening, and feel free to suggest any episode for reposting by emailing us at luskincenter@history.ucla.edu. Thanks, and Enjoy! Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now.
1: Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Today, we'll be discussing a new report by the Luskin Center that examines the history of homelessness in Los Angeles. We will be releasing the report in the coming weeks. The reality is known to many. L.A. has the dubious reputation of being the homeless capital of this country. Over the last five years alone, homelessness increased by nearly 50%, notwithstanding heightened public attention. In 2019, the rate grew by an astonishing 14% in the city of Los Angeles to more than 41,000 people and more than 66,000 in the county. And this is before the COVID crisis. Beyond the number of those on the streets, there are hundreds of thousands of people who live in a state of housing precarity in Los Angeles city and county. Why is this? What are the roots of homelessness in LA? And what do we learn from studying the past? Today is the first of a series of conversations about the new report that we'll be conducting over the course of the year. I'm pleased to have with us today three of the report's authors to discuss their findings. First is Marcus Vestal, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at UCLA, who studies the social history of property in South Los Angeles. In July, 2021, he will take up a position as assistant professor at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA. Next is Andrew Klein, a doctoral candidate in history at UCLA, who studies urban development and social movements in the 20th century United States. And finally, Fernanda Janveri, an architect and doctoral candidate in the Department of Urban Planning at UCLA. Her current research is based on Brazil and explores the role of the judiciary in practices of dispossession in that country. Welcome to you three, Mark, Andrew, and Fernanda. So, this report that you have been such a key part of offers a long term perspective on the problem of homelessness. And that long-term perspective pushes to the fore, not surprisingly, two key factors, race and class. So Mark, let's begin with you. Could you share with us some of the key findings of your work from the first part of the report that was focused on the first half of the 20th century um, and especially took up the period of the Great Depression?
2: Uh, Yeah, sure, thank you, David. Um, So, I mean, there was a lot of really interesting findings that uh, Andrew and I, when exploring this uh, kind of long period of history, we thought about it from kind of like the late 19th century uh, through the 1980s into the contemporary moment. And some of the key findings, some of them a bit of a surprise, and I think some of them, because we don't always think about uh, houselessness and kind of a long historical perspective, but a major one was just the demography of, Homelessness was just so much different. Um, Today, homelessness is undeniably Black, or at least a plurality of the homeless are Black. But in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, the majority of unhoused people were White. Um, Migrant laborers, also like what homelessness meant and what it looked like was a lot different. So when we use homelessness in the report for the history in the early 20th century and the late 19th century, I mean, some, some of these... People who are being identified as homeless are really just migrant laborers. They might have somewhere to go in some other place in the Midwest or something like that. But while they're out and about, people see them as being homeless. And the uh, maybe a major difference between how we define it between then and now have to do with um, like homelessness was about not having people watching you, being responsible for your well-being because there was no the New Deal didn't happen yet. We don't have a a significant welfare state and a and a social safety net so not having people that are responsible for your welfare was a way of being defined as homeless Uh, so the demography was definitely different i mean like in the during the great depression the vast majority we're talking about anywhere between 96 and 97 percent of unhoused people registered with the federal transient service were white Um, but then the other interesting thing about the demography of homelessness that even though for the most part it was almost all white um, the other part of that that we put inside the report is Uh, who was housing insecure, so that there were people of color, very diverse, mostly in downtown Los Angeles. We're talking about Mexican, Japanese, Chinese, Russian, Black, all types of folks of downtown that are experiencing housing precarity and maybe brief periods of of, of homelessness in downtown Los Angeles's housing courts and slums. So we have these two populations in early 20th century Los Angeles. We have a white kind of migrant labor population, streaming into Los Angeles from the Central Valley of the Northeast. And then we have a very racialized urban population of housing insecure people in downtown Los Angeles. So that was one um, one finding that we found really interesting. Uh, another one <clears throat> that also has to do with demography is that even though white people were uh, the, the the vast majority of, of, of homeless people or vagrants or transients, tramps, there's a whole bunch of names for them. Um, we found that uh, that that black people or black angelinos, and I'll say black people nationally in the little in the little spots of data that, that we could find from secondary sources have been uh, overrepresented among unhoused people for probably a, for probably a century. I mean, we don't have like consistent data for the from the 1930s all the way to the present moment to be able to make the claim uh, in a kind of rigorous and systematic way. But from the few points of data that we do have, um, in Los Angeles and from secondary sources in other cities, black people have been, have been more greatly impacted by homelessness um, than other populations, even when they were maybe just one or two percent of the total population. And so that this tells us that the um, the systemic factors that are leading to homelessness have been affecting black populations way prior to the 1980s. Like so the 1980s is a major turning point for seeing the kind of the, the, the demography of homelessness as it looks today it's mostly black it's families now there's women on the street so it's 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 different a lot different than what it was um in the early 20th century but there's some key systemic factors that seem to be consistent over the over the century that we really haven't taken care of things like segregation housing discrimination um and a whole bunch of other factors that we can also uh, talk to about with the with the, with the, with the other guest here um maybe one or two other key findings that I'd like to share. Uh, one is that that housing, cheap housing, we're not talking about affordable housing. So we're not talking about public housing. We're not talking about the nonprofit that's building a really shiny affordable housing complex in your neighborhood. We're talking about cheap single room occupancy hotels, flop houses, stuff like that are incredibly gendered. Um, so that we have a housing landscape, housing architecture a built environment of housing in the early 20th century that's built mostly for men and and for single men and for white men, uh, so that uh, we we have populations of homeless women and girls in Los Angeles that are incredibly hard to find and track um, because there's no place for them to go. It wasn't uh, it was it w- it would be kind of scandalous for a single young woman, black woman, to come into Los Angeles to be able to just rent a room or to live in a to live in a and uh, a religious shelter or something like that all of these things were designed for men so that's 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 a big thing and so even though we're talking about mostly men the men come up in the numbers there are homeless women and there are homeless families but they're incredibly hard to track because of this housing landscape and these institutions that are really targeting um vagrant men most of, for the most part because they were either uh unemployed or Uh, underemployed or just mobile in ways that kind of like middle-class bourgeois uh, forms of respectability didn't particularly like. Um, And then I think maybe the last thing I'll share about one of the key findings from this report have to do with the Depression-era policy, um, uh, Depression-era homeless policy from a city, state, and federal perspective, was that Los Angeles, maybe not unique, but East Coast cities and, and some cities in the North had municipal shelters um, starting in the the late 19th century. And Los Angeles made the curious decision not to build a municipal shelter. So basically like think about our our shelters today in terms of being funded and run by the city or the county or the state or something like that. Los Angeles decided to contract its homeless policy and its homeless services to uh, secular and religious institutions through a system that, that basically was called a community chest. So it's like a tax-funded and privately funded fund that then gets dispersed into this really complex uh, group of religious and secular institutions that were highly racialized, um, highly gendered. So th- this, this, this landscape of, of, of homeless services, which are really just services for, for poor folks in kind of different positions, orphans and stuff like that, um, they're they were but they were also means of social control, right? So if it's uh, so if you have a uh, there's a homeless woman comes into town, she can't just go anywhere she wants. She gets diverted to the, the 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 mother's home, you know, the woman's home, so that she could so that then she could be socially controlled, so that she wasn't then you know uh, on Central Avenue doing sex work or something like that. So this kind of landscape of private charities uh, weren't just about like the goodwill of people. They were. How do we control these different populations and put them in the proper places where they're supposed to be? Um, so those are some of the some of the some of the key findings. Uh, I think Andrew and also um, Fernanda can probably add
1: more. Okay, well we will pick up with them in just a minute. I want to, if I can, follow up and just understand a little bit better the uh, division of labor, as it were, between public and private uh, sectors um, in addressing the crisis. So you mentioned something called the Federal Transient Service. Uh, which suggests that there was a federal response. There was uh, local and state awareness of the phenomenon. And indeed, uh, census taking uh, of uh, the homeless population, if I understand correctly. And yet, you say that the burden of responsibility really came to lay with uh, these community chests. And so, I'm I'm curious how that public-private division of labor changed, especially as we move into the New Deal. Do we see a significant movement now to the public sector with the creation of the WPA and uh, other such institutions. Um, Is there a reconception of government's responsibility uh, to address uh, this problem of, of houselessness?
2: That's, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, Yes. So very much so. So during the 1920s, one of the reasons why like homeless, homeless encampments in the, in the, during the depression were called Hoovervilles. And the reason why they were called Hoovervilles is because making fun of Hoover for what they saw as being a disastrous response to the Great Depression. People were upset about the about the political response to the Great Depression, um, and the uh, Hoover became basically like a figurehead for a poor government response. So, and that's because uh, you know Hoover was a a good Republican, and California politically was Republican at this time, and the idea. Uh, and in terms of like uh, Republican orientation to public welfare, was private institutions and families are responsible for the welfare of the community. This is the there really wasn't a government infrastructure, or even we can think about it like government capacity. Like th- not just the government didn't think that they shouldn't do it, but mo- a lot of people believe that the government didn't have the power. That was that that exceeded federal powers for them to come into my community and kind of tell me how we're going to take care of people here. So um, in the early, in the early period of the great depression, that's what kind of, that's what, that's what held true was that these private institutions, these are the private charities, religious institutions, secular institutions, um, women's clubs, these are the folks that are going to respond to this crisis of houselessness in the early 20th century. And that's the way it should be. Right. Um, but then uh, and we have this detail of the report we're getting around 1931 and 1932 and it's and, and stuff is starting to hit the fan. Like the midnight mission is overcrowded. All the biggest missions in Los Angeles are overcrowded. Um, everyone's resources are being taxed and folks are starting to turn to well. we just need to police people out of the city because uh, we don't have the money. We didn't have the uh, budget allocations to say, oh, we're just going to build this shelter and build all this stuff. It just wasn't there. So at this point, the city then starts to, around 1931, 1932, starts to consider building a municipal shelter, which would have been kind of Los Angeles' public response, government response to the crisis. And they decided not to build it. What they did establish even before the Depression in 1928, I believe it is, but the correct dates in the report, was um, was like a transient bureau, kind of a clearinghouse to kind of point unhoused people to different services, and that's about as far as they went. But when we uh, when when Andrew and I looked into the archives, we wanted to find um, uh, uh, the voices of unhoused people and what they were demanding. And so what they were demanding was a government response um, and not just shelters. They wanted housing rented for them. Um, they wanted the autonomy to be able to establish. If they weren't gonna get housing, they wanted a, a land to be able to establish um, encampments and temporary and permanent housing. So folks are making demands for the government to respond. And part of what that demand is is not just like a like a like a, a formal political demand. You do this like as with a vote or something like that. But what people were doing, they were migrating. Migration is always a political act. So folks are migrating, they're, they're pissing off local authorities and they're forcing people, they're forcing government officials to respond to their restlessness and their search for survival. And so when we start getting into uh, 1932, then that's when Los Angeles starts to try to try to form a public response and start seeing that they have a public responsibility. They go through a bunch of silly campaigns. I think they had people, I don't know if Andrew remembers this, but it was like people were selling apples that ended up being like a, they were still, they were giving people like food or something to sell. So it was like, keep trying to have this kind of business response to it. Um, but eventually in 19, 1932, um, the... Uh, the county uh, starts building work camps um, in the hinterlands of Los Angeles and throughout the state. And so that ended up being the kind of city response uh, to the crisis along with trying to fund um, private shelters. But then really like once uh, FDR comes into office and the new deal starts up, and then there's then this federal response was the Federal Transient Service, uh, which was the first federal program to address homelessness in the history of the United States. So it was, um, and this is a part of the new deal that we never talk about, right? So when we talk about the new deal, we talk about like social security, we talk about the WPA, um, we talk about all of that stuff. We talk about um, uh, a building of like municipal infrastructure. We don't really talk about homeless policy, but this was part of the new deal, significant kind of departure from the Hoover administration and the kind of Republican ideals of this country come to a screeching halt and turn when we have the Federal Transient Service, which we don't have evidence of this, but it's just curious to me that the Federal Transient Service also developed like a a set of work camps and shelters similar to the California model that that was built before the Federal Transient Service um, was launched. So we couldn't find any evidence uh, 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 that the federal model was based off this California model, but California was seen as the as the center, right? They were receiving the disproportionate amount of, or at least they thought they were, maybe they were kind of like victimizing themselves, but the, 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 the at least the multiple census that we've seen, um, California had a disproportionate population of unhoused people traveling to the state, but also traveling within the state. Uh, so they were seen as, 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 as a model for the rest of the country and possibly as a model for the, the federal response.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Um, Maybe we'll turn now to Andrew and ask, what does the picture look like? Is it the the period of time that you uh, looked at really essentially the latter half of the 20th century? Do we see continuity um, in the phenomenon of houselessness and for that matter, government response, or um, are there significant shifts that begin to appear on the scene?
3: Yeah, that's that's a really important question. Um, Well, first off, just to echo what Mark has been saying, Um, it's really important to be clear that the category of homelessness itself is a political one. Um, That is, um, the government um, has, across history, decided to define who is and who isn't homeless in a certain way, and to demarcate um, the category of homelessness from the broader category of of housing precarity. And so I think um, in the post-war period, we really see Um, you know, a shift in how the state is thinking about the category of homelessness. And as such, um, you know, it really has informed what the archive looks like in terms of, you know, what the data, um, you know, on homelessness um, is in that period um, depends so much on who the state considers um, homeless or at risk of homelessness and who it doesn't. And so in the wake of World War II, um, there was a broad conception that the US economy was booming, that this was a golden age of capitalism, and that there were an abundance of jobs that were good paying um, in the manufacturing sector, especially, um, that would ensure that the problem of poverty, you know, was really... You know, going to be consigned to the past. You know, if it wasn't already starting to fade, um, you know, it was surely heading in that direction. There was this broad um, kind of governmental consensus that um, you know the economy was essentially lifting all boats, right? So when you start from that premise, um, if that is your lens onto the issue, it means that the people who seem to be falling through the cracks. Um, tend to be categorized, you know, as, you know, somehow personally deficient, right? Um, as as people who um, may suffer from various disabilities that prevent them from being able to um, acquire steady paying work, or um, they may be, you know, quote unquote, unattached men, um this was a category that really came to the fore in the post-war period, um, this perception that um, the people who were homeless were, you know, not suffering from, you know, a position within a broader political economic situation, but were, you know, somehow antisocial um, or you know, you know, alcoholic or you know, addicted to drugs things like this. This really became the way of understanding who was and who wasn't homeless in the post-war period. Um, And so, you know, one way that we really can sort of see, um, you know, this trajectory is to think about the ways that the county um, approached, you know, certain areas that were associated with homelessness and so, you know, Skid Row in this period really solidifies its reputation as the epicenter of homelessness um, throughout the region. And so, much of what we know about the phenomenon in this period comes from social scientists and policymakers um, observing, you know, conditions of life um, in this area. And so, one thing that we, you know, understand from you know various state reports is that um, in this period, homelessness was really understood as a problem of um, older white men who um, were seen as alcoholic, um, who were simply unable for you know various reasons to enter you know, the booming post-war economy and didn't have a family support system. Um, and so the state needed to kind of step in by this logic. Um, to deal with this population. Um, and, you know, the response at the time, you know, oscillated between, um, you know, one of, of you know, punishment of, you know, trying to remove people off the streets and into jails. Um, but it also, um, you know, was often expressed through various policies that, you know, were more humane, that that sort of recognize that this was a structural problem in some ways at the same time that, you know, there was always this tendency to blame uh, people for their own, you know, predicament. Um, And so we kind of have this kind of contradictory policy um, in the post-war period where on the one hand, um, you know, we see, you know, a kind of criminalization of poverty in the central city district, but we also see other attempts to house people either in the central city or in other places. And so um, I think one of the more revealing um, parts of of the story in the post-war period is to think about the changing relationship between um, Skid Row and and the broader central city area and rural places in Los Angeles County that um, as Mark alluded to um, served as county work camps during the great depression. Um, But in the post-war period, were converted into, you know, effectively, you know, places to, to warehouse um, people who are seen as somehow surplus to the functioning of, you know, the economy. And so, you know, we see a Civilian Conservation Corps relief camp converted um, in the 1950s to um, a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center, which by the 1960s, um, is no longer strictly voluntary. Um, that is, um, people who come to the center are no longer doing so by their own volition, but are, you know, ordered to do so by courts. Um, you know, later in the 20th century, we see, um, in LA um, of this rehabilitation center. Um, and in, you know, even later in the 20th century, we see, um, the emergence of, detention center um, in this region, which speaks to um, the ways that the state, you know, perceived the population of people, you know, in the Los Angeles region that were somehow surplus to the functioning of the economy in that period. And, you know, the phenomenon was largely seen as affecting white people. But um, in this period, we see um, a certain aspect of surprise that, Um, you know, Black people were uh, disproportionately represented among the houseless and precariously housed population. And so I think, you know, we can see, you know, across, you know, various, you know, pieces of data in this period, um, this acknowledgement that things are, are not working. And they're especially not working for Black people at the same effort to really acknowledge that um, in terms of the distribution of funds and policy decisions until later in the 20th century. Yeah, Mark,
2: please. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight something um, Andrew said to uh, David's question about the continuity of, is do we see a continuity in the in city and state policy uh, from this earlier period in the Great Depression uh, through the postwar period? And something I think is really significant that Andrew said Um, that we, that has so much urgency for the contemporary moment is thinking about like the way we think about policy and homelessness, we cannot um, uh, separate that from the way we think about space land use and land values, right? Because um, what we wanted to do during the great depression was, okay, so we have a bunch of, if we have a bunch of homeless people downtown or in spaces where we don't want them competing for work or, disturbing public order, um, and today we use quality of life citations to try to police that. Uh, so what, what do we do during the Great Depression? We want to basically move them out of the city into these work camps, into what Andrew called surplus, surplus spaces. And so this uh, uh, way of using surplus peripheral spaces to try to warehouse and police and contain, um, and in some cases incarcerate, um, on, on unhoused people is a through line through the 20th century, not only for unhoused people, but for the development of our, um, and which is especially important right now, considering the fact that we're all living in the wake of multiple re- uprisings and rebellions in this country after the killing of George Floyd, is this is the way mass incarceration developed in California. I mean, we have the, we have the largest carceral infrastructure in the world in California,
1: What part does the phenomenon of houselessness or homelessness have in the staggering rise in uh, the incarceration system and mass incarceration? What actually would you say are the connections between these two phenomena, both of which uh, reveal a disproportionately large number of
3: African-Americans? What's the connection? I, I would argue that they're intimately connected. Um, I think that, you know, one of the ways of understanding, um, how the carceral system and the use of prisons has changed over time is thinking about exactly what Mark talked about, which is, um, the changing valuation of certain, you know, spaces of certain pieces of land. So, um, when Los Angeles was more of an industrial city in the middle of the 20th century, You had to sort of govern the housing market and govern people's mobility in a way that ensured that working people uh, were able to, you know, eke out a living in L.A. and and be close enough to factories and other places of work. And so that had a major effect on, you know, planning policies and by extension, policing policies. Uh, You know, urban historians are are very clear that um, planning and policing, you know, go hand in hand. Um, across the history of the United States. And so um, as the kind of shifting um, economic situation leads to new conceptions of land and where is and where isn't value, valuable, um, that leads to a shifting conception of who is and who isn't valuable to the city. And so, you know, in the post-war period, you know, Skid Row, has a certain economic value to the city in um, the way that it absorbs new migrants to the city, um, you know, providing cheap housing um, for people who are just you know showing up looking for opportunity and work. Um, and it also, you know, functions as um, a place to recruit temporary labor. But this really starts to change, um, you know, later on in the twentieth century as downtown real estate, and, and we should be clear, Skid Row is right next to um, downtown, right to the east, um, becomes far more valuable as a speculative financial instrument than it is as you know a platform by which things are manufactured, um, and and other economic functions are carried out. And so this really affects how, you know the state begins to see Skid Row. Um, and so, you know, I think um, I'm focusing on Skid Row because I think it is is just a really important microcosm of the broader issue. Um, and it, it really shows us how these things are linked. And so, um, you know, although we associate, you know, mass incarceration and, and the real ramp up of the carceral state with um, the late 70s and 80s and 90s, we can already see in um, 1950 in Skid Row. Um, in the wake of the 1949 Housing Act, which um, ushered in this new um, urban regime in the United States, um, we see a major uptick in policing in Skid Row in the 1950s. And um, in conjunction with that, we see a major uptick in enforcement of building code violations, right? So we, we already see in this period the way that um, policing, both of people and of Buildings um, through the you know the cities and the counties regulatory apparatuses is changing um, in light of changing perceptions of the value of, of the central city area.
1: Uh, before turning to Fernanda, I do want to ask you a question about terminology. Um, at various points, you and Mark have used the term houselessness or unhoused um, in seemingly in preference uh, to uh, the term homelessness. I'm just wondering if you could say a word about terminology and what you think is at stake in the various terms.
3: Sure, Um, well, you know, I'll just say that in recent years, um, people who are unhoused and people who are involved in movements um, in defense of the rights of people who are unhoused um, have questioned the validity and aptness of the term homelessness for the basic reason um that the term, you know, is is stigmatizing um, in its implication that although someone may not have the money to afford rent, that should not necessarily imply that they don't have, you know, a conception of home. And so, you know, the idea that people are unhoused, you know, implies that um, this is not, you know, a condition that is inevitable in any way. It is an act produced by a certain, you know, set of policies Um, and a certain normalization of, you know, conditions of poverty. That said, I I recognize that there's not consensus on this issue, and that, as always, um, you know, these terms are fluid and changing and contested. And so, you know, when we speak about this topic, our language should reflect um, that kind of, you know, political contestation. Got it. Okay, thank you. I want to turn now to Fernanda.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew, um, to pick up on some of the themes that uh, Andrew mentioned and really that sort of uh, combination, that that mixture of, uh, of, of space, capital, uh, and the phenomenon of houselessness. Uh, because you and your work um, have looked at some very interesting features um, on the landscape of Los Angeles in the early 21st century. Um, and in particular, The corporatization of the LA housing market, marked by the entry of private equity firms, which snatched up large numbers of properties. And I'm wondering if you can explain what was going on in this period. Um, What what was what was the interest of private equity in getting involved, and what effects did it have on uh, the landscape?
4: Yeah, of course. So initially the financialization of the housing sector might not seem to have an explicit connection to houselessness but in fact, this increasing corporatization of the real estate sector, as you mentioned has everything to do it, right? Um, As a common outcome, right? As common outcomes of these processes are indeed displacement and dispossession be it in the form of foreclosure or even eviction. So in fact, the corporatization of the residential real estate sector in the 2000s drove housing prices up considerably not only in LA but in many major cities across the US as well. So this expansion of the mortgage markets right in this period and of course the deregulation of the financial sector and what I'm trying to bring here is the is that the state of course played an important role here too right to to Mark and Andrew's previous point. So this deregulation allow banks and other financial institutions to issue, for example, mortgage-backed securities that made almost all income levels eligible for a mortgage loan. Many of these loans were usually riskier loans with higher interest rates. And therefore we can argue that Decades, right? Decades of an increasingly deregulated financial sector, ultimately culminated in this 2008 or 2009 subprime crisis, which of course worsened housing affordability uh, in LA and and in other cities across the country. So many homeowners loaded with these heavy financial burdens, they would be they would owe more than the market value of their homes. And it's also important to highlight that, especially after 2008, especially after 2009, foreclosure became one of the biggest forces behind displacement in the United States. And this was especially true in California, which was one of the epicenters of this crisis. So while over 2 million properties were foreclosed, um, in less than three years in the US, right, at the, at the very peak of the crisis. In LA, it's estimated that almost 150, um, 100,000 properties were repossessed in the first years after this crisis. So just for us to have an idea, foreclosure properties made up 43% of the total of home sales Um, in L.A. County during 2008 and 2009, according to Paul Ong, a professor here at UCLA and his colleagues. However, I think it's crucial to note that in addition to this impact, right, in addition to the impact that this massive wave of foreclosure obviously had on homeowners in L.A., this also drove up housing rents. So rents rose almost 10%, in 2014, costing more or less the average LA County tenant um, a little bit over 20,000 a year. However, if we consider that the median renting household earned less than 40,000 annually, this means that many households were spending nearly half of their income on housing. Of course, then we can say that the foreclosure crisis significantly aggravated right, uh, the situation of renters in LA. This trend was of course exacerbated by the California Ellis Act right, of 1985, which kind of allowed landlords to evict tenants in order to go out of business. And according to a study by the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project, landlords and developers have used this Ellis Act to evict tenants in over 25,000 units across the city of LA between 2001 and last year and 2019. Um, I want to say that paradoxically, however, we can also claim that the subprime crisis was responsible for increasing the rental supply in LA, but not in a sustainable way. And I will explain why I mean by that. So foreclosure in the wake of the financial crisis reversed right the trend of this growing home ownership in LA, which led to concentrating vacancies or rental conversions in distress in so-called distressed communities across the city. So this is this process is in fact part of a new paradigm that is starting to be analyzed by scholars such as Desiree Field from Berkeley. So she and others they claim that. In the last years, we're witnessing a shift in this regime of housing financialization. So if in the first decade, right, of the century, the main so-called raw material, right, to to feed these circuits of capital was mortgage and related products, now the raw material, is rent. In fact, some authors are actually calling this phase financialization 2.0 because they suggest that increasingly since the subprime crisis, um, speculative short-term buy low and sell high investment strategies have been kind of given way to longer term buy and hold tactics. Meaning that now, instead of the securization of mortgages, um, investors, private equity funds, and other financial actors, they are interested in the securitization of rent. So these firms bought and they continue to buy foreclosed properties and they are turning them into rental units to build huge housing portfolios. So they are, in fact, becoming the the biggest right tenants um, in L.A. In fact, Blackstone and its um, rental subsidiary, known as Invitation Homes, so Blackstone is the largest single family home landlord both nationally and statewide. So until 2015, according to a report published by the Tenants Together, the company had its rental port had in its rental portfolio almost 50,000 homes nationwide and about 5,000 of these homes were in California. This might not sound like a lot, but this is a process that is just emerging, that is just starting. And like Blackstone, there are many other companies, like for, for example, Colony Financial and Starwood Point Residential Trust, and they're doing the same. So this monopoly, right? This so-called monopoly of rents in some local markets within LA and within other cities might actually result not only in increases in rent, but in a total shift in this landlord/slash tenant relationship, meaning that landlords will become less accountable, for example, to home repairs or even to be able to negotiate rent, because in many circumstances, the tenant they, they cannot even, the tenants cannot even find an address or even a, a phone number to call. Um, Of course, right, this this flipping of foreclosure uh, homes into rental units by these big corporations, this is making housing much less affordable, right, in many neighborhoods, Um, not to mention um, higher eviction rates or lack of maintenance, as I just mentioned, among other concerns. But the thing is that, unfortunately, these effects have been especially severe um, in Black and Latino neighborhoods according to Molina, who have written extensively about the financialization of housing in the state of California. So to conclude, I think we can argue that race remained a central factor, right, in this crisis. So in cities such as L.A., such as Oakland, Sacramento, San Diego, African-Americans were nearly twice as likely to report, for example, lender marketing efforts as a reason for taking out a home equity loan compared to to whites. Also, subprime lending not only made African-American families more vulnerable to evictions due due to the the loan's onerous terms, but also due to the existing patterns of racial segregation that Andrew and, and Mark talked about. So we still don't have a lot of data about this, but for example, from September of 2006 through October of 2009, foreclosure rates for African-American and Latino homeowners were respectively 1.9 and 2.3 times higher than whites. And besides experiencing these higher foreclosure rates, predominantly African-American and Latino neighborhoods also experience the highest real estate owned property vacancy rates. Not to mention the fact that as I pointed out, in the majority of cases, the so-called oligopoly, right, of securitized pool of rental units is located in areas that already suffered with this investment, right, that are usually communities of color. So these processes ultimately make these residents, right, living in in these communities more susceptible not only to these Wall Street landlords, but also to other kinds of institutional um, landlords as well such as, for example, LLCs, which uh, accounts for limited liability companies, right? Um, This is actually part of a great groundbreaking research that are being conducted now by folks such as Joel Montana, right? So they are making these families more susceptible, right? Um, To, uh, for example, evictions, right? And these companies, at the same time, they lack transparency, they have limited accountability, And they are usually only interested in this tenant bidding war of who can pay um, uh, the highest rent, right? So therefore, everything I I mentioned, just to say that at the end of the day, these families are also much more susceptible to evictions and eventually to to houselessness um, as well.
1: Okay, at this point, I wanna ask uh, Mark to jump in. Uh, Yeah, I just
2: wanted to really, um... Uh, second, what Fernando was saying in terms of like this this shifting um, uh, regime of rental housing in Black and uh, Latinx neighborhoods and in places like Los Angeles, but also uh, nationally um, uh, and probably internationally as well in some capacities. Uh, so that what we, what we end up seeing. I live in South Los Angeles. I organize with the Tenant Union in South Los Angeles, and we've uh, we've been responding to. Um, illegal evictions during the shelter-in-place and the moratoriums, uh, and one major, probably the number one, uh, uh, the number one driver of el- the legal evictions that we've been seeing, have been these uh, LLCs that uh, that operate under the heading of transitional housing, and they're not. And when I say transitional housing, this isn't like an official program through the city or the county that, you know, let's say a formerly incarcerated person's released on probation or something like that. And they go into this transitional housing program. It's nothing like that. It's just called transitional housing. And this is what, so what's being created here is we have like a level of corporate landlords for what we can call like regular tenancies, right? So this is like, I live in one of these Tricon American Homes, um, where I have to pay a huge deposit. I have to do background check, all of that kind of professionalization of, of landlordism. Um, but it costs an incredible amount of money to be able to get inside of an, a, 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 an apartment in South Central that costs $1,500 a month, one bedroom, 500 square feet, cost me like $3,000 to get into it. Now, what, that, what, what, what happens with that kind of corporate landlord model is that creates underneath it for people who can't afford that, this entire landscape of These LLC transitional housing that um, doesn't require things like huge deposits, doesn't require huge monthly rents. Um, So it's not $1,500 a month, but what it'll be is it'll be a very tiny room that costs $900 a month. So it's still incredibly expensive. But um, so we're starting to see that these developments of these buildings um, is that because it's being called transitional housing and a lot of these tenants. Are um, receiving subsidies from some of these new city and county programs um, like Health for Housing. What ends up happening is that they're uh, they're kind of like shadow tenancies. Uh, there's no risk, there's no accountability to tenant landlord law. Uh, folks folks in South Central can't afford the really corp now the now corporate uh, 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 model anymore because they all these background checks credit checks all of this kind of stuff. So then they go to these LLCs that they find, like on Facebook Marketplace or something like that, who's renting a room for, let's say, six hundred and fifty dollars. You show up, you you pay your rent in cash. They don't give you a receipt, um, and then you turn around and two months later they want you out. Is this is this going? To hurt? And the uh, and the and the case managers for that are paying for the subsidized rents, they're they're facilitating it because then they want to keep relationships with. Uh, with with the landlord, so when one of their clients who's receiving a, a rent, you know, when a, when a manager says, "Hey, I want this person out of my place," then the uh, then the the, the case manager is not then advocating for tenant landlord law, saying, "No, you have to go through these procedures. This person has these rights." They go, "Okay, let's find a new place," to go. Um, or the or they're just being put out on the street. So there's so there's multiple layers here in terms of this corporatization of the uh, the uh, tenant landlord landscape in, in poor communities of color, um, where there's just so many levels of housing precarity. Either you can't pay your way into housing, and then when you can pay something, the only the reason that it functions the way that the reason why they the this 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 business model works to these LLCs is because it's it's just criminal levels of housing insecurity. Eviction companies. These are just like informal groups of people who end up getting hired by landlords who go over to tenants' places and and beat them up, threatening them, cut off their utilities. Um, uh, uh and this is like the slow violence of all of this process, right? Somebody shows up, they beat you up, they put you out. But a lot of this stuff is little things. Oh, we're gonna cut off the water outside. We're going to send people to your house every week. So there's so so this is what happens when we have. All of what what talking about in terms of the the corporatization is that we we don't have any of those community ties anymore, right? Like what we were seeing in the in the, in the Great Depression, in the early twentieth century, let's say, in black households that were renting rooms is uh, 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 it was kind of like a surrogate family, right? So there were like restrictions, like let's say if I if I own a, if I own a house and I'm going to rent one room in a place, um, that person is then going to be a reflection of my family and the order that I keep in my house in the early 20th century. So there are like restrictions. So like single women wouldn't be uh, wanted as tenants. They'd be looking for like a working man or a couple to come and move into this room. But what ends up happening there is there's some negotiation, right? There's some familial connection. And also for the landlord, there's some community accountability uh, because if they're just treating people crazy, And your your neighbors see it, people are gonna talk about you at church and talk about you at the corner store. There's some accountability to the way these contracts are being made. And now in terms of what Fernandez talking about, which is so very important, if it's just some LLC out in the, you know, out in the ether, I can't, you know, and and I can't pay the rent. I can't negotiate any of that. You know, hey, my dog got sick. This happened, this happened. I mean, this this is a way that our our, 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 um, our, our, our rental economies have been working for centuries, right? And now all of this is breaking down into these very hard and fast rules about having a certain kind of credit score or, you know, having, or or this is a good one, um, being able to pay 30% or be, having um, three times the amount of income as your rent. I mean, nobody in LA can pay that. And if you're, if you're 5% off, you can't get in this tenancy. So then what, then what ends up happening to these people who can't, who, can, who, who, can't, who can't live up to this?
1: So important about the report that you have uh, produced, which is to say, you show both the deep structural continuities in the phenomenon of uh, houselessness uh, in Los Angeles, but also the new practices and methods uh, that have exacerbated the problem, uh, especially uh, this corporatization of the real estate market that Fernandez spoke about um, uh, just a minute ago. Um, We are, uh, alas, coming to the end of our time, and I want to just highlight one of the distinctive features of this report and other Luskin Center reports, which is not just the kind of textured um, engagement with the past uh, that you have uh, given uh, such um, uh, a rich example of, but also uh, an eye cast forward, Um, that is to say, a set of uh, guidelines or recommendations uh, that you propose based upon your reading of the past. Um, and so I'd like to ask each of you to, um, to, um, uh, give an idea of what, um, you have in mind, um, uh, in terms of addressing this crisis, what the team came up with by way of recommendations based upon this very, uh, uh, deep textured granular, uh, study of the phenomenon. So maybe, uh, Fernanda will begin with you.
4: Yeah, I can start. So I can speak to the land and housing related recommendations that we made. So most of uh, like, first of all, we recommended to like limit housing precarity by developing, of course, and by advancing renter and tenants protections, right, and landlord regulations, of course, that bolsters tenants' rights, but also that disincentivize long-term vacancy and regulate the financial sector on um, this, and, and the financial sector and corporate landlords into the rental market, as we just elaborated on. Also to repeal the, the costa hawkins Rental Housing Act, Act and approve more aggressive rent stabilization um, legislation. Um, and also to amend or repeal the act, it's used to circumvent tenants' rights, right? So, for example, organizations and other coalitions in LA and, and elsewhere in California, they're already trying to push this forward, right? So, organizations, for example, such as Tenants Together or the LA, LA Tenants Union or LA Right to Cancel Coalition. So, they have been doing a, a, a wonderful work on the ground. Also, we would like to see, um, we would like to push forward the uh, right to cancel, right, for for tenants in eviction proceedings. So actually, according to a report by the National Low-Income Housing Coalition published two years ago, nationwide, 90% of tenants facing evictions do not have a lawyer. So we believe that with Uh, appropriate legal counsel on the the outcomes of these eviction litigations might change for for many tenants and limit the incursion of the sharing economy, for example, companies such as Airbnb, Uh, and of course, a limited incursion of institutional investors such as invitation home that that I've just talked about into the housing market, especially into the rental housing market.
1: Thank you, Fernanda. Maybe now we'll turn to Andrew.
3: Yeah, so the policy recommendation that I'll focus on is the decriminalization of houselessness. And this is a demand that has um, come up again and again um, in the archive of um, people who are houseless. Um, you know, Their demands have have again and again um located this issue as absolutely central. Um, and so what I mean by the decriminalization of homelessness, I mean um you know repealing LA Municipal Code um 4118 D, which um criminalizes you know sleeping outdoors. And this was you know uh, a policy that was passed in 1968 um, at this you know moment where the city was increasingly interested in redeveloping Skid Row and so you know to you know speak to the previous question about the relationship between um you know criminalization and houselessness i think this issue really is at the nexus of it um and so you know in thinking about this history you know we see for example the LA union of the homeless um you know a self-governed um collective of houseless people um writing to the mayor in 1986 um, saying that the policy of investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in a sprinkler system um, in Gladys Park in Skid Row, um, serving the sole purpose of forcing out people who slept in the park in this very brutal, punitive way by, by raining down water on them um, was not only immoral, but, um, you know, misuse of city resources. And so, um, you know, it may sound like just kind of one, you know, slice of of a bigger picture, but I think it really um, touches on so many of the kind of interlocking aspects of this issue when we think about the criminalization of poverty and homelessness.
1: Thank you, Andrew. And we began um, our historical analysis with Mark, and so um, uh, we'll conclude with you. Uh, and your recommendation.
2: Thank you, David. Um, Andrew and I, when we collaborated, the 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 rec- the recommendation that we that that we agreed to was the decriminalization is what we felt like the history of um, uh, was the kind of insight that we gathered from the history was this through line with over about 150 years of criminalizing unhoused people. So that's something that definitely um, uh, needs to be addressed. Uh, The other thing that I can add um, outside of criminalization that I think the history of homeless policy in Los Angeles, um, I think requires us to address is the wonky uh, governing powers that are divided between the city and the county of Los Angeles. So it's really just reimagining um, that relationship and actually transforming something like the Los Angeles. The recommendation of the report is to uh, transform the Los Angeles Homeless Services um, into a super agency with executive leadership that's empowered to cite homeless housing projects and expedite their approval across the country. Um, some folks, uh, uh, advocates, activists, organizers may not agree with that. Uh, with that with that move in terms of empowering uh, loss to 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 have that power. but really I think that the the essential recommendation in terms of how to think about that is do we need we need to address this historic division between the city and county that's cre- that's creating a lot of um, inefficiency um, gaps in responsibility um, and just the uncoordinated fashion of our, of, of our housing policy because of this historic division. So it's really just to, just to look at that. So even if we don't agree with that particular move in reference to LASA, it's to, it's to examine, um, the way that our government has, as, as, uh, the way that our government has suffered from this inefficiency. And, it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and that goes across a whole bunch of other stuff too. It's not just, um, it's not just homelessness policy, but we see this confusion. I mean, if anybody is a tenant that's going to be listening to this, how confusing it's been to deal with the coronavirus eviction moratoriums across not only city and county jurisdictions, but then all the other municipalities throughout the Los Angeles County and then and then the state and then the federal, right? So it's, it, it's just, it's so confusing to have all of these different kind of governing institutions when you're just a tenant. Um, or, or an unhoused person trying to figure out like where to get help, whose jurisdiction is this, who's responsible for that, getting sent to this agency and into that one. It's just this huge runaround and complex of nonprofits, different government agencies, some from the city, some from the county, and it's just completely inefficient and it's not working. In um, in conversation, this is really, really important. This isn't just about a bunch of administrators getting together and deciding to reformat the way that it works, but to get with uh, get with unhoused people, get with their advocates, um, and understand the way that they need these services, the way that they want them administered, or not. Um, where 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 they want these uh, uh, where they want these services administered, where they want their housing to be. If we don't have a reimagination of government's relationship to providing people's human right to housing that respects the demands and the autonomy of unhoused people, the policies aren't going to work, and we've seen that throughout the history. You can create shelters. You can do all of this stuff and spend all of this money, but if it's but if it's not being created in collaboration with the folks that are going to use it, then the services are going to fail. You know, this isn't just like any kind of like commodity or service, but this is home. And if people aren't invested in that end product, however we end up developing it, um, then then it's not going to work. And I think that that's really key here. This isn't just a unit of housing or a shelter bed. Like we're producing people's homes. And so this is a cultural and social unit and people have to be involved in that. They have to be represented in that process. And this is what we want to reimagine.
1: So on that very compelling note, I want to thank all three of you, Mark, Andrew, and Fernanda for joining us on Then and Now. It's been a very illuminating time. Um, And I also want to thank our listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts about this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter@history.ucla.edu luskin, L-U-S-K-I-N, Center at history.ucla.edu. To be the first to read this report, you can sign up to receive our emails on our website. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a good and safe day. Bye-bye. Thank
0: you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.